0: Well, as previously mentioned, promised, I suppose, uh, this sermon will deal exclusively with the ethics of the complete form of holy warfare, the killing of everything that breathes, seen in the book of Joshua, or at least seen in spots there. Now, this presents a serious problem to many good people, including Christians. And I hope this morning to encourage and strengthen you in what I take to be the biblical framework for looking, seeing this issue. Of course, this is also fertile ground for people who are seeking to discredit the Bible and Christianity. The God of the Bible, the atheist Richard Dawkins tells us, is a genocidal maniac, among other things. Others may not put it that dramatically, but this form of warfare under Joshua and at divine command is regularly used to attack the goodness of the God of the Bible. I'm not going to be using any particular text, although we heard the command for this holy total war in the Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 20, this morning you can find it in Deuteronomy 7 as well. We're going to make six points. It's a lot of points, I know. Six points. Preliminary considerations. We have to step back some, somewhat to see this and speak about it aright. Then Adam. Then common grace. Grace. Common grace is the third point. The fourth point is Canaan. Fifth point is the New Testament. And the sixth point is the Second Coming. So we have to take a sort of sweeping panoramic view again. Preliminary considerations Adam, Common Grace, Canaan, the New Testament, and the Second Coming. So, first, some preliminaries. I start with an axiom that anyone who takes the Bible to be the Word of God should be comfortable with. And this is the axiom. Never apologize for anything in the Bible. If you see this issue raised with Christians, either on television or elsewhere, the first thing you notice is a lot of squirming from the Christian. And you get a lot of, well, that was the Old Testament, things are different with Jesus, stuff like that. And I hope to show that this simply won't do, and it usually convinces no one. There is, I also hope to show, there is no reason to be defensive here. None. This is as hard as it gets in defending Scripture, and it's really not that hard though the biblical answers may be offensive to some. They may offend some in this room. They may offend the sensibilities of people. And those sensibilities are the next consideration that I want to take up. Moderns, modern Western men and women tend to assume, and they do this blindly, and we do it, they tend to assume that they are at the height the apex of human moral development. That their sensibilities about justice and fairness and human rights are the only sensibilities that any reasonable person anywhere at any time could possibly have. Right? Our whole national rhetoric assumes this. If we embrace something, the rest of the world should be embracing it. All right, leave aside for now the contradiction that these same people are always telling us that all cultures are basically equal and thus deserving of respect. Now, we all share some of these attitudes and in many cases for good reason. I, I make no apology for thinking that Western civilization at its best is better Than other cultures in many, many ways. But our sense, our sense, the sense that moderns have of their superiority, of their being at the end of some evolutionary chain of of moral reasoning, it needs to be deeply chastened and, and, uh, if you will, exposed in this debate. You can't leave the sensibilities of moderns intact. And talk properly about holy war in Joshua. In the United States alone, forget the rest of the West. Forget the rest of the West. Just in the United States alone, we have killed 57 million unborn children. I mean, Joshua already, I haven't even started. Now Joshua looks like Gandhi. Gandhi. Our sexual practices have stacked up millions of dead bodies. There are 30 million people dead from AIDS. Five times as many people as Hitler killed. Now you won't hear this when this question gets asked to Christians on CNN for some reason. They curl up in the corner. The wars of modern industrial countries in the 20th century alone have killed hundreds of millions of people. And so we have our, us modern enlightened folks, so deadly in earnest, so serious about the problem of genocide in the book of Joshua, and we've engaged in slaughter, which is orders of magnitude greater than all the wars in the Bible combined. Secularism has drenched the world in far more blood than any religion. And yet, no talking head proposes abandoning the secular project. It's always religion and violence. So we ought not to assume we must challenge this idea that our sensibilities and the sensibilities of our neighbors are superior and enlightened, and Joshua, well, he's just barbaric. That cannot be allowed in this debate to pass unchallenged. So in addition, when questions about biblical holy war arise, they often come from unbelievers who are pure materialists. And and our answer to those folks should be, how precisely is this wrong in a meaningless universe? In a universe which is nothing but matter in motion? I mean, this could be an issue for a Christian who believes in an objective moral order. But for you, Mr. Materialist, it's just bags of chemicals bumping into each other. Stuff happens. Get over it. Who cares? It matters who's asking this question about holy war, doesn't it? And if, and if an unbeliever or a materialist is asking it, we should say, can you explain to me why precisely, on your view of reality, anything is wrong? But you don't get to say, look, we live in a blind, meaningless cosmos, and Joshua is really bad. And finally, on preliminaries, let me point out a major hypocrisy behind the questioning of holy war in Scripture. And it's this. On the one hand, we're told that we cannot believe in a good God because there's just too much evil and injustice in the world. And then, when God acts... To eradicate evil, as he does here in the book of Joshua, we're told, hey, that's mean and uncalled for. So which is it? God is indicted for all the evil in the world, and then he's indicted when he deals with it. It's hypocrisy. What is he supposed to be exactly? A a, a perpetual doting grandfather who's never angry? Who never demonstrates wrath? Who wants a God who doesn't get angry at wholesale slaughter and corruption and violence and injustice and evil? Those are the preliminaries. The second point is Adam. Back to the beginning. Adam, the Bible teaches, represents and acts for all men. When Adam falls, we're all implicated. In Adam, all die. That's the doctrine of original sin. And thus there are no innocent human beings. Death, physical death, and eternal death is what we all deserve. The whole of Scripture makes this plain. But in mercy, God deferred the sentence to Adam. He allows his saving purposes to be carried out and eternal death is deferred to the final judgment. Physical death is still imposed on us. It's still carried out, but not immediately. From dust you were taken to dust you shall return still holds. And thus physical death in all circumstances, by whatever means, including the means in the book of Joshua, is part of the curse of sin. And so here we can see what's often behind the... uh, the what about genocide in the book of Joshua questions is basically a hostility to the idea that all men are guilty and all men deserve death. We're the clay, he's the potter. God is the judge of all the earth. He's the sovereign of life and death. He can execute his just sentence in any way that sees fit. If you forget that, well, then you curl up in the corner when they ask you this question on CNN. And... And beloved, this is important. If that makes you queasy, you are going to have to give up the whole teaching of the Bible, not just the holy wars in Joshua. And so a final word about Adam and Eve before we move on. Eden was a holy land. A sanctuary. What we might call today a theocracy, a place where God rules. And there are no rivals in Eden, and no rivals are permitted to exist. There's no First Amendment in Eden. You know, there's no right to blasphemous speech. There's no freedom of religion in Eden. No sin was permitted, and all evil was to be eradicated from Eden. Adam should have slain the serpent with a kind of holy violence. He should have resisted temptation, and eventually he'd have been confirmed in righteousness and obtain glory. We can deduce this, not only from a close reading of Genesis, but also from the fact that Jesus, the last Adam, does what the first Adam failed to do. Right? Jesus resists the serpent in the wilderness. He slays the serpent at the cross. And eventually, he brings his people into a new Eden, the new heavens and the new earth. So, as we know from the biblical story, as it turned out, one sin, that's it, one sin in Eden, results in expulsion from the land. I mean, that's not true outside of Eden. Eden's a special holy place. No rivals, no sin. And once out of Eden, the people of God wander. They're no longer in a holy realm, a theocratic realm. And that brings me to the third point here, which is common grace. There is a method to my madness. We're, we're going to get back to Joshua in a couple minutes here. But common grace is a term that's used for the situation of the world now that we're banished from Eden. It means that we're no longer in a holy realm, but we're in a common realm. We're in a realm out here that we have to share with unbelievers, with people of different religions. Right? That was not to be the design in Eden. And so common grace speaks of grace, or kindness, or goodness, which God shows to all men and women. Thus it's common to all. And this grace includes things like rain, and sunshine, and marriage, and fruitfulness, and food, and labor, the state, the natural moral order which we know through conscience, all the many blessings by which God upholds and sustains the world and the social order in which all people live. That's common grace. Common grace is what Jesus is talking about when he says the Father causes his Son to shine on the just and the unjust. That's the order we're in. Now this, this common grace doesn't save. It doesn't save, it preserves, it sustains natural life. And within this order, God shows saving grace. He calls his people out. He saves Seth and Noah and Abraham. And he gathers a holy people to himself within the larger common order. But notice this, these holy people, they don't have a holy Eden-like land. They're outside of Eden. Eden. And so what do God's people have to do? We see this, for example, in the book of Genesis. They have to negotiate with other people. Abraham is wandering around in Canaan. It's promised to him, but it's not yet a holy realm. It's a common realm. He shares it with others. And so he has to negotiate with his neighbors. And we can see Abraham engaged with them in war. In judicial disputes, he enters into covenants. He buys and sells land. He pursues all these other transactions. We might say that in this situation, there is a kind of primitive freedom of religion. Abraham doesn't go to the other Canaanites and say, hey, you can't do that. He negotiates with them. He worships Yahweh. He builds altars to Yahweh. And they're building altars to other gods. Very similar to the situation we live in here. All this time, all this time, the final judgment which we deserve in Adam is held in abeyance. It's deferred. It's deferred, but it's not rescinded. And God reserves the right when evil becomes prevalent, when it violates the basic order of creation to bring foretastes of that coming judgment. That's what the flood was. It's what Sodom and Gomorrah was about. Those are pictures within this common order of the coming final judgment. And if the truth is told, those are just as objectionable, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, just as objectionable with moderns as the holy war in Joshua is. But again, the objection here is simply, really the idea that God is the judge of all the earth. And so the flood comes, and after the flood, God makes this covenant with Noah. And he says, look, I'm going to uphold the common created order. I'm going to uphold it until the final judgment. And that brings me to the fourth point here, Canaan. And here we move closer to our immediate concern. So, prior to 400 years of slavery in Egypt and eventual deliverance out of Egypt, God promised this land of Canaan to Abraham. But in Genesis 15, he tells something very important to Abraham. He says to Abraham, Abraham, Look, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, your descendants are going to come out and possess this land. But, God continues to Abraham, for at that time, the iniquity of the Amorites, the the Canaanites, will be full, will be filled up, will be complete. So the Canaanites, their iniquity... Will fill itself up like like a cup fills itself up. And they'll eventually, God says to Abraham, 400 years from now, be dispossessed by Abraham's offspring. And that's what's happening under Joshua. But it's important to see that God, in great patience and mercy, will tolerate their iniquity and their wickedness for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And when it's finally full and complete, then Abraham's seed shall possess the land. So the Canaanites are not just guilty in Adam, like we all are, but they're also guilty of hundreds of years of iniquity before Joshua arrives in Canaan. Now, Canaanite culture was degraded, profoundly degraded. It was sexually immoral. It was grossly idolatrous. They practiced child sacrifice in Canaan because of their gods. There's evidence of of bestiality and a whole range of other practices. Moses says because they defiled the land, the land itself will vomit them out. It's as if if Joshua didn't do it, the land would spit them out. It's this backdrop of God's patience and his promise of the land that brings us to Joshua and his total holy war against the Canaanites. And before I get to that warfare itself, there's one more thing to see. Israel was not commanded, you'll note this, Israel's not commanded to practice this form of warfare on any nation or anywhere except in Canaan. Right, when Israel goes to fight the Syrians... Or has other skirmishes with surrounding nations, this form of warfare is not the form they exercise. This form is only exercised in Canaan. Why is this? Well, the answer is Canaan is not a common shared order with the other nations. Canaan is a new kind of Eden, it's a new kind of Holy Land. It's not like Egypt was in the past or Babylon would be in the future. Canaan is a a picture of a new holy realm. And thus in Canaan, no other gods, just like in Eden. No settlements with other nations. No freedom of religion in Canaan. Canaan is a holy theocratic realm, and it points back to Eden where all evil should have been eliminated, it points forward to the new heavens and the new earth where all evil will be eliminated. As we've said repeatedly in the series on Joshua, God has always been seeking a holy people under a holy sun, in a holy land, enjoying a holy rest. There's three things that have to be locked together in our minds. Eden, Canaan, and the new creation. Because the whole biblical story goes right through there. And so entry into this land then, this holy land. And by holy here, we don't mean sacred the way people speak of uh, tours of the holy land. Right? By holy, we mean a theocratic realm in which the God of Israel rules and all other gods and all evil are evicted. That land, inhabited by this wicked but long tolerated people, necessitates total holy warfare, complete destruction. God will evict all evil from his holy realm, just as Adam should have in Eden, it, and just as it should have been done under Joshua, and just as it shall be done when Christ comes in glory to judge the heavens and the earth. No exceptions. Canaan is a symbol of this reality. And without understanding that properly, you can't even begin to discuss the form of total warfare that Joshua engages in. So here, I'm going to make a couple observations which I think round out the picture and help vindicate further the justice of God. These are sub-points under the fourth point. Don't don't worry about that. But just a couple of sub-points. First, The story of Rahab, which we looked at, indicates that there is the possibility held out to Canaanites to repent and avoid destruction. There are other indications of this in Joshua as well. Destruction can be avoided by submitting to Israel and her God. And if the story of Rahab means anything, it means that a Canaanite can become an Israelite. Second, though Joshua won many victories and he could be spoken of broadly as subduing the land it's very clear that he didn't wipe all the Canaanites out especially if you look at the book of Judges they're around for hundreds of years Much, many enemies remain in the land unconquered that doesn't mean that holy war wasn't carried out by the way, do you know how many cities Joshua burned right to the ground? three, that's it, three doesn't mean though that he didn't win victory in the land. It just means it wasn't fully carried out. The scale of destruction in the book of Joshua is far, far less than something like the U.S. Civil War. Much less than the current war in Syria. Third, and this is crucial here, especially against the charge of genocide. When Israel, Israel, God's own... Covenant people, when they violated the Mosaic law and they behaved like Canaanites, what happened to them? They were executed and cut off from the land. And eventually, Israel, for its long standing disobedience, was expelled from the land. Israel, God's people, suffers the same fate as the Canaanites they're killed or exiled. So, this is it's impossible that this can be genocide as if God hated one race of people and didn't treat the other race with justice. This is holy justice to uphold the holy realm, and God says not even Israel is exempt. And the fourth thing to note here is this is the one-time nature of this. Only in the land is total holy war permitted. Israel's forbidden, to practice this form of warfare every other place in the world. There's no command which says, go to China and kill them all. Radical Islamic Jihad is a permanent institution, a perpetual command, at least as read by the radicals, to subjugate infidels. Joshua's situation is one narrow instance on one piece of land for the larger biblical purposes that we've outlined. Joshua's actions are not permitted by anyone today. In fact, they're expressly forbidden. And that brings us to the New Testament. Jesus, the greater Joshua, comes, and he bears on the cross the holy violence, the holy judgment of God. He bears violence ultimately to end violence. And then he sends forth the church to imitate his example. Not to return evil for evil, but to love our enemies. And so here we're going to have to be precise. Jesus does not eliminate holy war, but he does change its form. He doesn't eliminate it, he changes its form. What does he do? He sends out the church, a holy nation, spread among the common nations of the world, to engage in spiritual warfare, prayer, worship, obedience, Love, the Great Commission, Word, Sacraments, Witness. But this is a deadly, earnest, holy war. We're calling people into union with the Holy Son, into God's holy nation, that they might inherit the coming Holy Land. And we warn the unrepentant that they will be dispossessed. That God will, at Christ's return, evict all evil from his holy realm. So, I want to say a word here about, you might feel a certain tension here, right? (laughs) Um, About the coming judgment and the call to imitate Jesus. And and I want to get at this by telling you a little bit about a a theologian who's now at Yale, I believe. His name is Miroslav Wolf. He grew up in Eastern Europe. And uh, in his reflections on his Croatian people's sufferings at the hands of the Serbs, Uh, And he saw lots of warfare and displacement and violence. And he concludes that only a hearty confidence in these coming judgments of God, the God who will evict all evil from his holy realm, only that can ground a life of nonviolent love to our enemies. He says this, and this is This is really profound and important here. He says the presupposition or the belief of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. In other words, the fact that God will come at the end and exercise holy vengeance is the very ground upon which you should renounce it now because you are not God, and you can't do it justly. So here, Wolf is simply echoing Paul. Paul said, at the end of Romans 12, Paul says, do not return evil for evil. He says, if your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. If he's hungry, feed him. And then Paul says, in doing this, you leave room for the vengeance of God. We don't turn the other cheek because we think Jesus and Gandhi and Martin Luther King are really cool guys and that nonviolence is, is somehow some eternal truth of the universe. God is not, God is love, but He is not perfect non coercive love. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We turn the other cheek and act non coercively because we are not God. <laughs> And because God is a God of just and holy vengeance. The the presupposition of God's just judgment at the end is the reason why we renounce violence in the middle. And and Wolf imagines among his elite academic colleagues that this is not going to be popular. It's funny. He says, uh, I can see them responding to my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Try saying that at Yale. We practice nonviolence precisely because we believe in divine vengeance. I mean, otherwise, what would you have? A universe that goes on forever where no one is ever reckoned, where Stalin is not punished, where Hitler is not punished, where they're dead are not raised, where no injustice is ever rectified. That's, that's what you have. We should be holy and uh, nonviolent and peaceful and turn the other cheek because what? We live in a universe where nothing is ever going to be settled. Why would you do that? So Wolf imagines that this would be unpopular, and he um, he says, I imagine an objector saying we should not retaliate. And the reason we shouldn't retaliate is because God is perfect, Non-coercive love. I mean, who wouldn't who I mean who's going to disagree with that? Someone comes up and says God is perfect non-coercive love? It's like disagreeing with motherhood or something. No one's going to object, but you should object. Because God is not perfect non-coercive love. Wolf says that he's somewhat tried by Westerners lecturing people who've lived in war zones, he said who've been plundered, whose wives and sisters and daughters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers and sons have been murdered. He's tired of hearing Westerners tell him that we shouldn't believe in a God who does justice and vengeance. He says, soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, he says, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. We are nonviolent because we believe in holy violence exercised by Christ the Lamb of God at the end of history and that that holy violence is prefigured by the wars in Joshua. And that brings me to the last point, the second coming. Jesus, his meekness, his going to the cross does not mean he will not exercise holy force to evict evil from his holy realm. What kind of a God would he be if he said, you know what, I'm not going to deal, you know, in any coercive way with any injustice ever. Scripture makes it clear that the Jesus who first conquered by being conquered will appear as a conquering warrior. That's why we read Revelation 19 for the New Testament lesson today. I I urge you to take a look at that passage. This Jesus comes and he eradicates all evil from creation. He gives his holy people a holy realm and a holy rest under a holy sun. There's no pluralism of religion in the eschatological, glorious kingdom of God. And so there it is, Revelation 19. Jesus is engaging in the ultimate holy war. He appears riding on a white horse with a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth with which he smites the nation. The text says he judges and he wages war. He has a robe dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. And and the text says that this Jesus, your Jesus, meek and mild, the Jesus who turned the other cheek, when he returns, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Can your Jesus do that? Because if he can't tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, what good is he? Because the world is soaked with the blood of the innocent. It's full of vile wickedness, idolatry, and injustice. And if we don't have a God who's going to deal with that, then we, I don't know what we're doing here exactly. We're trying to be nice, I suppose. One scholar is clearly uncomfortable with this language in Revelation 19. He's a good scholar too, and he says, Well, this is symbolic language. It's apocalyptic language. To which I say, yes, but sure it's symbolic, but symbolic of what? The the language in Revelation 19 is surely not symbolic of Jesus turning the other cheek. Trampling out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty with his robe dipped in blood. That is what Joshua pointed to. And by the way, that reality is much more dreadful, much more extensive, much more permanent than anything that happened in Canaan. It turns out that without a theology of holy war, you can't be a Christian. I mean, you can call yourself one. You can be very nice. This is at the center of the story. And we can trust the sheer goodness of this holy force in Revelation 19, for it is called the wrath of the Lamb. It's the wrath of the one who's born wrath. That's why you can't exercise wrath. You haven't born it. It's the wrath of the one who's born wrath, and it's pure, unmixed, holy justice. You can place this kind of vengeance, this kind of judging in the hands of this Christ because he was broken and bruised and crushed and bore injustice and bore violence. And now he will rectify things. In the meantime, you imitate him by turning the other cheek. And so you can bet that underneath all the complaints about the injustice of these holy wars in Joshua lies the specter of those who hate the fact that this Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so you cannot soften or eradicate the holy warfare in Joshua without unraveling the whole biblical story. God is good. He is just. He is patient. He is merciful. And He is the judge of all the earth. He does and he shall do what is right. Amen.